I'm Nick Harcourt and welcome to another episode of The Sound of Success, the podcast where we talk with movers, shakers, and just plain cool people about music. My guest today is actress Judy Greer. Judy has appeared in most of your favorite films and TV shows of the last 20 years, including early roles in movies like Jawbreaker, What Women Want, Elizabethtown, and Love and Other Drugs. Other roles include 13 Going on 30, The Village, Adaptation, Carrie, and the Planet of the Apes reboot series, and she joined the Marvel Universe for Ant-Man and Ant-Man and the Wasp. She also played Karen, the daughter of Jamie Lee Curtis's Laurie Strode character, in the recent Halloween and Halloween Kills movies. On television, she's known for her starring voice role as Cheryl Tunt in the FXX animated comedy series Archer, and as Lena Bowman in the FX sitcom Marriage. She's also appeared in The Big Bang Theory, Arrested Development, Two and a Half Men, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, and more recently, The Thing About Pam, Reboot, and White House Plumbers. She made her directorial debut with the comedy drama film A Happening of Monumental Proportions in 2017. Judy, welcome. And now that's all the time we have. <laughs> that was a long list, dude. <laughs> Thank you for having me. <laughs> Your list of credits is quite frankly monumental. And <laughs> it would be remiss of me not to mention that you and I met briefly. Yes, we did. When we both worked on a, a short-lived TV show called Love Monkey back in 2006. Yeah. And recently I did an interview with someone who we were talking about Love Monkey and that, uh, and I was like, God, I, I don't even know how to see that. Like, I would love to. This is before I met my husband. And I was like, he would love the show. And and the sweet reporter, like, reached out to my publicist and was like, I have all the episodes. Um, I recorded them. And I can make them into DVDs and send them to you, which was really sweet. But Oh, wow. I know. It was a good show. I, I, don't, I don't know. It didn't last long. You know, a lot of mine don't. I was pioneering the limited series before. I was like a real trailblazer. I'm like, it was my show was canceled it was that i was just doing a lot of limited series and i didn't know it we didn't call it that yet <laughs> limited series in so much as they only ran six and didn't bother with the other three that yeah, they'd yeah, shot. yeah yeah exactly <laughs> they just limited it you are a busy busy actor are you yeah. dr- are you driven by a work ethic instilled in you as a kid or do you have the the michael kane approach of continually mm-hmm. working out of there'll never be another job I think I have uh, a nice balance of both. I think I have a really, I, I'm learning a really intense work ethic. And I also feel like every job will be my last. And so I just kind of keep working and working and working. And I think, um, I don't know if that's the healthiest way to be anymore, but I can't stop. Well, you're going to you're going to stop right now, I think. Uh, yeah. <laughs> didn't uh like a couple of hours ago at midnight the the Writers Guild of America went out went out on strike? Yes. Uh happy day 1 of the Writers Guild strike. Um we were we went to the Dodger game last night my husband and I and actually like got an email like I think it was around 8 p.m. like that the strike was happening and so um so for me, I don't know, I have I mean, I have a lot of feelings about the strike and I feel like you know, it sinks for the writers that they're the ones that have to trailblaze. But like there are changes that need to be made um, now, the way that we take in our media, where we watch television, how we watch television, what we watch on television it has changed so fast. And and so I think that the writers have to take one for the team, meaning the actors and the directors and figure out like how we're going to move forward in this weird new world of streaming and everything. And yeah, I uh, having an idea that this would probably happen, I was offered a play a few months ago and uh-huh. I was like, wait, when does that start? I was like, oh, that might be a really nice place to hide out wow. for the, yeah. the strike. And so I'll be heading to Chicago in a week and a half to do a play, a new play called Another Marriage at the Steppenwolf. Um, I hope the strike does not last, last that long. But yes, I was like, well, hey, man, if there's a strike, like I can... Like I like to do, keep working just uh, in the theater. I'll hide out in Chicago while everyone figures it out. Do you do you do a lot of theater? I wish. No, I don't. And I've always I always want to get back to it. The last play I did was like I think about ten years ago, actually, and it was my first show on Broadway, and it was an, an incredible experience. Also turned into a limited series. <laughs> we were uh, we opened like days after Hurricane Sandy. Um, 
So all the theaters shut down for that. And that was a crazy time to be in Manhattan. And not being a New Yorker, I was like, wow, this city is really doubled down on its intensity. Um, but we we opened our show and we were up for a few weeks and then we closed early. But um, no, I was trained because I went to college in Chicago, a theater school at DePaul University. And uh, so I was like a theater trained actor. Um, so I've always tried to get back, but you know, it's not very lucrative, the theater. So right, sometimes right. when I'm like, I want to do a play, my agents are like, oh, okay, great. We'll find you one. But we also got you this TV show and a movie and then this other movie and then another TV show. So like, do you want to do those? And I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, there's like, I live in Los Angeles and like, for whatever reason, which makes no sense to me, the theater scene here is like not super respected. And I hope that I don't offend anyone by saying that. Like we have a couple great theaters and there are some amazing productions that come to town or that start here. But for the most part, like you think like how many amazing actors live here? Like we should have a theater scene. I would do anything to have a theater scene in Los Angeles. Like, but for whatever reason, we're just like stuck in film and television. <laughs> what, what, why do you think that is? Is it because people are just hustling so much they can't slow down enough to sort of think about, uh, you know, putting on plays or? I don't want to sound bitter, but I think it all comes down to money. And it just is like how to make money and sure. how, <clears throat> like, I don't think it's lucrative for actors to necessarily do plays. You know, it's like you have to quit your job, whatever job you have that um, if you're already, you know, on a TV show, you don't have time. If you are doing like a supplementary, a supplement job to have ends meet while you're trying to get acting jobs, like then that's weird because you'd have to quit that to do a play. It was, it's like the perfect problem. You know, you don't get paid enough to do theater where it can like support you, but then, so then you have to do these other jobs, but then you can't really do theater because of it's like you know what I mean it's like that I don't know double-edged sword or something oh I was just gonna say when I was in college and I could do plays in Chicago because or after college because I was bartending at a nightclub I didn't have to be at work until 11 p.m so I would do plays and then I would like hustle to work and then work all night although I was a child so I had a lot of energy but um and so that was like how I made it work but you know if you have like a great job waiting tables or something like it's really hard to walk away from that for like however many months. Is, is it a different community of actors though? Because back in the day, you had stage actors and you had film actors and uh, radio actors. And, and now you have actors who just cross all of those diff different genres. Yeah, I saw that start to happen when I moved to LA. Um, I didn't really know what I was witnessing, but now I can look back and see that like, I always think it was maybe not as much with theater, but certainly with like film and TV. When I first moved here, it was like you had to choose, like, do I want to be a stage or a film actress or a TV actress? Um, but I noticed that with the cast of Friends and that show was like such a huge hit that on their hiatus, like over the summer when they weren't shooting Friends, like they all started to do movies, like these like silly comedies. And they would do really well, a lot of them, the films. So then I, I sort of credit the cast of Friends as like starting to erase that line of having to choose because then when friends eventually got canceled like you know like you have jennifer aniston going on to do movies and and david twimmer and like you know everyone kind of and then at that point too you had a lot of act like film actors now starting to do television shows and then you have hbo who's making these incredible series and they're like taking film actors now and putting them I and that's like respected you know and then all of a sudden you see like someone who was once only doing movies like on a tv show on like a network and then and then the line just completely went away and th this all sort of ties back in really to what we started off talking about which is that the, the writers guild yeah. is on strike now because of all these new technologies mm -hmm. uh, for television streaming yeah. technologies obviously it's harder and harder for people to make a living other than get job, get paid. Yeah. In, in, in the past, there would be residuals and those yes. things are not happening as much now, right? Right. And not with actors either. So whereas you used to make money on your job for like years mm -hmm. afterward because you would, you know, they would sell it to different outlets and stuff or you would have reruns, for example, like if you're on a network. 
And with the streaming platforms, like it's a buyout. So when I do a job on a streaming platform, I get paid like for those exact days and that is it. So there's no residuals um, anymore for that, which I can't speak for the writers, but I can definitely speak for the actors to say that there's a lot of actors who made a living, like a decent living doing several guest stars a year on a network TV show like Law and Order, like CSI and all those, you know, any of those shows that were on a network television, um, a network channel you would do one episode and then every time they rerun it or they sell it to the foreign sales indication indication, uh, airplanes that was like another sale you would get money for you would make enough money which is the most important thing to a support yourself but also to pay into your insurance so you have health insurance so then you have these people that are now getting paid like one and done to be on a tv an episode of a tv show but it's not going into this it's not going into this big pot that then eventually gives you and your family, I'll add, health insurance for the year. Mm. And so it's really changed the way a lot of people have changed the income for like most of SAG, the Screen Actors Guild. Because, you know, like most of the Screen Actors Guild isn't Brad Pitt, right? Like most right. of us are, and I'm even like, I would say one of the lucky few who gets to work a lot and and make enough money to have my health insurance and stuff. But, you know, those actors who were really like kind of like I said, like hitting a couple of guest spots, a couple great little supporting roles in movies like now all that stuff just goes to streaming. And so it's just been increasingly hard for people to make a living. And so it's a big deal for writers and and actors and a lot of other people in the business. uh, If you're not at the top of the of the pyramid. Yes. You're down the bottom and struggling yes. to, you know, put food on the table and, and get health care. Yes. Like like the rest of the country. Like everybody you know? else. Yeah. Yes. And so I think when you think about like in a bigger picture, like eliminating a middle class, you know, and like that's kind of I think what what some of these changes have done is like the sort of like like the middle class artist, if you will, getting really screwed by all this quickly changing technology and and um and middle class artist is a thing you know like anyway yeah well and and it's it's not like the 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 multinational corporations that own all these streamers are not making tons of money they just have you know thank you yes exactly like it's really hard to imagine like apple is struggling and can't afford to make a change i mean right but I don't know. I don't know about the business stuff, but yeah, like when you look at that, when you look at specifically a few of these (laughs) streamers, you're like, really? Yeah. It's all about stock price, I think. Yeah. Yeah. You you mentioned um, being at school Mm -hmm. and you you were a theater kid. Um, What attracted you to acting and when did you know it was something you wanted to do for, for, for a job? I really was never, I, I, well, okay. I started acting in high school. I started, I was, I was dancing. Like I was a ballerina for a while and I really liked that, but I I knew I wasn't very good at it, but I really liked doing it, but I wasn't like, you know, it's pretty easy. Like the older you get, I think with anything like sports, anything athletic really to see pretty clear, like, oh, she's kick-ass and I'm not kick-ass. But I liked doing it. So I did that for a long time. And then I started auditioning for musicals in high school to be like in the chorus so I could like sing and dance in the background, even though I cannot sing to save my life. But um, it was fun and I was making friends. And so my high school had this acting program that seemed also fun. And I was definitely more geared toward the arts and less toward the academics. So I auditioned for that. I did this acting program in my high school. Um, when it came time to sort of figure out college, I didn't know what to do. I wasn't thinking I would go and be an actor. I wasn't even thinking I would study acting, but this girl in my program was auditioning for a school in Chicago, DePaul University. I had a friend who had gone to DePaul. She was a science major, I think, but um, I'd heard of the school. It was in Chicago. I was in Michigan. It was like far, but close. You know what I mean? Like I could get away, but um, I wasn't like super far. Uh, it was like a train ride or a car ride away. So anyway, 
the lo- the short story is basically this girl was auditioning for it and she said it was really hard to get into. And I told my mom that my mom was like, well, you're going to audition for it. Then no one's going to tell you that it's too hard to get into. And I'm like, OK, mm-hmm. whatever. Um, but I got in. So I ended up going to this four year acting conservatory still at this point, not even thinking like I'm going to be an actor. I love acting. I just like I love the school. It was a small school and I went to a huge high school. So it was like really fun to be in like this little program where we were all really close and we got to know each other and we, you know, loved each other, hated each other. Um, it was a really great experience. I still had no idea what I was going to do with my life. I figured I would eventually have to go to grad school and major in something that I could use. Um, but when I graduated, I started auditioning for things in Chicago and I started booking them. And, you know, I, I know I'm talented, but I also think in those early days, like it's, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I don't know why I would book things and other people wouldn't. But for whatever reason, like I did. And so I just kept acting and I kept booking more jobs. And I kept thinking like this will eventually dry up and I will then get serious with my life. But I'm, you know, I'm well into my career now. (laughs) I don't know when this part is going to happen where I uh, where I get serious about my life. (laughs) But yeah, you know, I think in in the beginning, maybe I just had this like, I don't care attitude and that's sexy or interesting. So I was booking roles. And then I think I have acted enough now that I have gotten to be a good actor. I mean, I, I always tell people to act as much as you can act all the time as you can because even if you're not getting paid for it if you're in acting class if you're doing a play like we talked about if you're like you know if you're acting you're just going to get better you know we can't always book a job but we can be in classes we can read plays we can you know do short films we can make our own content whatever I mean it's so different now I never really know how to advise people who ask me like well how do I get started and I'm like I don't even know. I have no idea. But but you can get in a class. You can write your own stuff. You can read plays with your friends on the weekends or whatever. I don't know. I just think that what makes you a good actor is acting. So um, we have to get our 10,000 hours in, as Malcolm Gladwell would say. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. I believe in that strongly. You know, I mentioned to a few people in the last week or so that you were going to be a guest on on the podcast. And I can't tell you how many people asked me to ask you about Jawbreaker. Oh, what an incredible, A, what an incredible story. What a great movie. I love that movie. I, I was here. I mean, I was. You, you were young, right? I was 22. Yeah. I might have even been 21. I, I think I was 22. Right. I was 22, which seems insane to me now because my stepson is 22 and Anyway, um, I was 22. I had come to Los Angeles to audition during pilot season. Um, and I was going to stay here for two weeks and go on audition. And I had an agent who was sending me out on auditions. She wouldn't even sign me, but she was like, I'll send you out on auditions and get feedback and see how you do. Mm. Um, and at this one night, it was a Friday evening, and I was going to fly to San Francisco for the weekend to visit a friend and then fly back to L.A., and I remember it was like before 9-11. So you could like walk into airport. You know what I mean? Like it was different. Yeah, it was very different. <laughs> Which flying. I basically don't remember, but no. you could just like walk up to your gate, right? You get to the airport 20 minutes before your flight and get yeah, on it. Honestly. And so I took a cab to the to LAX. Um, also like rookie move flying from LAX to San Francisco. Like would never do that again. I would take Burbank. But anyway, <laughs> um <laughs> so um I take a cab to LAX. I'm like waiting in line and I had a pager because again, pre-cell phone and a pager is going off and it's like, it's like my agent's phone number with 911 after it. I'm like, I'm not a brain surgeon. Like, calm down everybody. Like, you do not need to page me with a 911. And I'm like in line to board the plane. I'm like, so I get out of line, go to a payphone, call back. They're like, hey, this is really important. They're auditioning this movie, they don't have one of their leads and they start shooting on Wednesday and you need to go in. They want to see you right now. And I was like, well, I can't. I'm about to board a plane. They're like, well, can you just take a later flight? Again, pre 9-11. I was like, I guess I can just take the next flight. 
Right. Like, it'd be really great if you could just go out. Like, well, I don't have the material. I haven't read the script. Like, I don't know anything. And you also have to know, I just graduated from theater school. So I took it all very seriously. I was like, <laughs> well, I can't possibly audition without reading the script and without knowing the role and without being prepared. And they're like, just go and like meet these people. Anyway, so I'm like, ugh. I get in a taxi. I go back. Literally, it was the corner of Hollywood and Vine. I passed, I live right by the building now and I see it all the time. I'm like, that's where it all began. Um, <laughs> but I... And it's also like a weirdly like sort of famous intersection in Hollywood, right? Like Hollywood no Vine, right? And I like took a cab. I'm like Hollywood and Vine, and step on it, cabbie. And uh, and I get dropped off. I go in the building, um, go up, go into the office. They're like waiting for me. They're like, "Hi, oh my gosh!" And by the way, like none of this is because of me. I know now this is because they cannot start shooting their movie without this role being cast. So I'm like, hello, I'm Judy Greer. Uh, I'm, you know, here from Chicago. They're like, no, 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 we know. We're so excited. Here's the scene. I'm like, well, I need some time. Like, can you just give me like 10 minutes? I don't know what the movie's about. They're like, okay, yeah, whatever. It's like, it's about this and this and this. And then here's the scene. Can you do it? And I'm like, just everyone hold on. So I like go in a room, shut the door. I like read the scene a couple of times. I'm like, okay, I'm ready. And I'm thinking this is such a nightmare. But also like, I didn't realize sort of the stakes of it. To me, I was like, I just need to get back to the airport to get on the next flight to San Francisco to see my friend. Anyway, I do my audition. They offer me the role, like, right there. They're like, we want you to do it. You have to do wow. it. I'm just like, well, I haven't read the script. Like, I don't. They're like, oh, okay. Okay, great. I mean, definitely read the script, but you have to do the role. And I think they knew. They're like, she's obviously going to do it. They're like, but while you're reading the script, uh, our costume designer is here. Can she just take your measurement? And uh, on Monday, we're going to dye her hair blonde and we're get, like all this stuff. And it was like all happening so fast. And I was like, wow. okay, okay. So they hand me the script, print it out. And I um, I get on a pay phone outside and call my agent. And I'm like, I think it's happening. They're like, oh my gosh, this is so crazy. And then I, I like call a taxi and go back to the airport in a cab and get on the next flight to San Francisco. And I'm just like reeling. I'm like, I can't even believe this. Like, I can't believe this is happening. And, and then, you know, that, that's my story about getting Jawbreaker. And it was, I, I flew home. I think I spent one night in San Francisco, flew home early, had mega costume fitting. They chopped off all my hair. They dyed it blonde, like platinum blonde for the violet part of my role. Um, found me a wig to be fern and we shot this movie for I think it was 21 days in Los Angeles also the the house the jawbreaker house where Liz who we killed lived is also like the same distance on the other side of my house and I walk my dog by it all the time and I'm like oh, that's so funny like anyway it was such a crazy experience I didn't know what I was doing I had done like a movie. I'd done some TV episodes. I'd done a play after graduation. Like I had worked, but it just felt like this was like in LA and it was right. a movie, and the leading role. And like Rose McGowan was so famous. Rebecca Gayhart was so famous. Like Julie Benz, I knew she like, I, it was just like crazy. It happened so fast. Cracked open a lot of doors, right? It really did. And then I just kind of kept working after that. And I, yeah. you know, stayed in touch with those people. And the movie had, I mean, Darren uh, Stein, who wrote and directed it, he always said, like, I want it to be like Heather's. I want it to be a cult classic. And, you know, when it came out, it wasn't like, I don't remember it being like a crazy huge hit. But it, he was right. I mean, people love that movie. It has stood the test of time. We just like, Two years ago, I think it was like 22 years old now or something. Like people love that movie. And so many, um, so many people come up to me from that and say like, it, it really like changed their life. And I'm like, how did it change your life? But one friend of mine said, and you know, he was growing up in Ohio and he said he saw it as a kid and he felt like, oh my God, like someone understands how I think. Like there's someone out there that thinks like me. And, you know, he obviously talking about the filmmaker and I was thinking like, well, for that to hit, to have this young kid in Ohio who was gay and not out, like feel heard by somebody on the other side of the country. And, and, and that made me really happy. That's how he explained it to me. That's, that's great art. 
Yeah. When, when you can impact somebody in, yeah. in, in that way. Yeah. So you've got all day, right? We're going to work through every role until <laughs> we get to the music questions. That was that was the movie that half a dozen people said to me, like, you know, oh, Jawbreaker. So yeah. I, I felt it. Like you yeah. gave me a great story about how you oh, got the, yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank you. Uh, you were just kind of like, oh, I've got to go do this audition before I go to San Francisco. Okay. Okay. And then I it know. changed. Changed my life. Changed the trajectory of your life. And, mm -hmm. and, and now you still get to see all those, all those places as well. <laughs> I know. And now I live in the middle of it still to this day. I think that's why like, I, never, I never got out of this little bubble. There was one other movie I, I wanted to ask you about because I'm, I'm imagining a little bit of a challenge. You seem like someone who likes a challenge. Mm. Um, what about motion capture work? Yeah, um, in in the planet of the uh, apes movies with 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 Andy Serkis, who is obviously well known for for that. What's that like? Um, it's really freeing to do it. You just have to get over that first two hours of feeling like a total asshole. Like for me, I should say, because of what you're dressed up in and how you're having to sort of you're in like the gray like unitard, like a gray. A Velcro unitard. You have all these weird things attached to you. And let me tell you, as a girl, it's a little bit more difficult when you have to go to the bathroom because you have to get unhooked. They have to unhook everything. You're like, oh, God, I just have to pee. They have to unhook all the things. And then you go to the bathroom and then you come back and they have to hook everything back up. It's like, oh, God. And everybody's waiting as well. And everyone's like, Judy's 10-1, which is like code for going to the bathroom, going pee. And I'm like, oh, oh. I found myself like getting really dehydrated while I was shooting it because I was like, I'm just not going to drink anything all day. <laughs> and then as I get like, as soon as I'd wrap, I'd just be like chugging water. Um, it's really cool. And, and it's oddly like so freeing. But I did have like my first two hours like coming out in the weird like suit with the helmet on and there's this weird camera that comes in front of your face to like to to capture your facial expressions and you have all these dots pointed like painted on your face but you are still you know acting in a scene and and trying to sort of then also trying to mimic the movements of of an ape. I mean it was but it's really beautiful. Like it really, it forces you to kind of be real. Like I can't hide behind props in a set and costume and hair and makeup. Like this is just real raw scene work. And I loved it. And real close up as well. Really in there, really in your face. Yeah. Um, but I am lucky because I got to do it with, the best of the best, meaning Andy Circus, who uh, is a genius. And I will, till the day I die, feel like he should have been nominated and won an Academy Award for any one of his three performances as Caesar in The Planet of the Apes, because I don't know anyone who can do what he does. And, and he was so magnificent. And I, I just, was in awe of him when I was working with him, but then also just watching those movies. I think he's a genius and it's hard. It's harder to do that than just, like I said, be on a set and have like everyone, you know, like it's really different. Comedy, tragedy. We hear a lot about tone in acting. Yeah. yeah. How does your approach differ depending on the, the type of role? I don't really think I change it up too much. I kind of rely a lot on my director. It's scary when you, and you, I mean, we've all had jobs where our boss or our director, you're like, oh, they don't know. They don't know what they're doing. <laughs> okay. Um, that's kind of scary. But for the most part, I feel like my preparation is kind of the same. Um, I just have to wait to see like my first day on set. Like what's, so how are we all, how, what's our, what is our tone here? Like, um, but I think that's, I don't know. It's always best to just kind of keep it simple and tell the truth. Um, and, you know, like if it's a dark movie, if it's a, a drama, you know, like that's one thing. I'm not going to be like ad-libbing jokes, but I'm not going to really be like prepared differently necessarily. I don't, I don't 
Anyway. Jump into uh, into the music questions because we referenced at the beginning that we met briefly on a show called Love yeah. Monkey, which was actually set in the in the, in the music industry. Um, yes, and we were lucky enough to have you working on it. That was such a huge get. It was a lot of fun. I was really bummed when they basically murdered it by where they put it. I know, I know. And I, when they told us that we got you, I was like, oh my god, well then we're fine. Yeah, well, you got a thousand of those stories, I'm sure. Like, what? It only did six episodes? Depending. <laughs> I don't think I ever saw all of them either, to be honest with you. So if you do have them on DVD, we'll have to do a, <laughs> okay. a, our own Netflix exchange on that. What is your first musical memory? Oh, that's such a good question. Okay, so my first musical memory is probably like listening to the Doobie Brothers with my dad. And I would need to figure out what age I was. But there's like, there's like my dad music that I listened to with my dad. And then when I started to love my own music, it was Madonna. Um, so listening to the doobies with your dad, what was the first music you bought with your own money? Oh, that was the, um, it was the Eye of the Tiger. I remember going to Musicland at the mall and with my own allowance buying that song um you know the freedom to fight i think it was from like rocky three or something right survivor right the band survivor yeah yeah that was it i bought that i think i bought that 45 what was the first concert you went to without adult supervision the first concert i chose to go to was information society and i went with my friend Lindsay, but her mom took us and sat with us but that was like my first, like, I want to see this band. And we went, uh, yeah. What was it about that band? And, and do you remember the experience of being in the, in the audience watching this? I do remember it. And the band, I just like, I was like, I wasn't smart about it then, but it was like that one song. I want to know what you're thinking. Like, I love that song. And I was like, I want, and like, I wanted to go to a concert. And my best friend, Nicole, had already been to a concert. She went to see UB40 and I was really jealous. And so I wanted to go to a concert. And this one came up and I was like, great, we're going to go to this. Um, It was at a small venue that I forget the name of in Royal Oak, Michigan, where I'd since seen other bands. But um, it was like really... I just felt like a grown-up. I felt like, well, I felt like this is what it'll be like to be a grown-up, to be able to right. do this all the time. How old do you think you were? I mean, I must have been in junior high, maybe. I'm trying to remember, because then I lost touch with that friend. So it would have been like probably end of end of elementary school, beginning of junior high. Got it. You mentioned that you started off as a, a dancer. Um, do you, do you still dance? And if you do. Usually my dancing is like trying to mimic like any Beyonce music videos that I like will put on. But no. You should Definitely, put those up on YouTube. Oh my God. Yes, I could. That would take me in a different direction, I think, career-wise, um, which might be good. What, what do you listen to when you want to dance? I like Beyonce, probably, I would say. Especially Renaissance is just like, amazing when i first moved to chicago um well when i moved to chicago and i was 18 to go to college uh my roommate at the time and she is a dj her name's colette marino i think she was going by dj colette um but she was not a dj then she was just my roommate in the dorms and we got along really well and she was from chicago and she was very big into the underground like house music scene in Chicago at the time. So this is like 1993, 94. So I started going with her to these underground house parties, like in warehouses. And it was so fun. And that music, like Chicago house music is like my favorite music to dance to. Um, and I was hearing it all the time. And that's what we listened to in our dorm. And anyway, when Renaissance came out, last summer it was really like it like like this feels like that that gave me those vibes of like the early mid 90s like underground house scene in chicago um yeah it was that's what i like to dance around to but it's like now it's like dancing around not dancing <laughs> you dance around the house when nobody's yeah. looking yeah yeah, yeah. what do you what do you listen to if you're feeling sad are you somebody who sort of 
barrels into it by your oh music choice? Or are you somebody who listens to music to change that feeling? I like to I like to lean in, definitely. Um, I use music a lot when I'm working for myself, for my roles, for scenes. I'll make playlists for the character. I'll make playlists for certain scenes. I mean, man, thank God for Bon Iver. If you want to, like, cry about something, I mean, like, um, that's, that makes me really sad. I have a list. I have a playlist of sad songs. Um, but it, I think there's something kind of, there's this band called the radio department that I've also really loved that the actor Adam Goldberg turned me on to like 500 years ago. Um, and there's something, I guess not as much sad as melancholy in music that I find I'm really drawn to. Um, like those sort of thoughtful, like almost like ominous, like hollow vibes, like not necessarily the newest Bell and Sebastian, but like older Bell and Sebastian, I find interesting because it doesn't, it's not sad, but there is like, I hear like an undertone of melancholy that I always really like, like rainy day music. And like my later year, my like end of high school years, I was so into like the British shoegaze scene, like like My Bloody Valentine and Ride and Slow Dive and Verve, A Storm in Heaven specifically, mm. like life-changing for me, Loveless, that My Bloody Valentine record that's always on like top 100 records of all time. And I'm like, yes, it is. Um, I loved all that like super like pedally, you know, shoegazy stuff. I loved it. If, if you could only hear one song for, for the rest of your life. Well, Whatever. Who answers this question? <laughs> um, could could you pick one song? I mean, you don't have to listen to it like on repeat, but right. it's just one. That's crazy. I mean, one song for the rest of my life. Uh, I mean, maybe it would be the girl from Ipanema, the Stan Getz, Joajo Berto, girl from Ipanema. Like, again, I feel like that hits this weird tone of like, happy but also kind of like an undercurrent of like desire hopefulness sadness like I don't know but I bought that cd um that sort of famous Stan Getz Roberto cd that um you know the orange and yellow anyway anyway I bought that cd at a coffee shop in Chicago again when I first moved there and I was living in the dorms and I think I wore it out. I listened to that whole thing. I mean, that would be like probably my Desert Island record. Do you know Do you know the album uh, that Joe Beam did with Sinatra? It's all that Brazilian stuff. There's a version of Ipanema and then oh, baubles, bangles, and beads. Check it out. I'm writing it down. Do you have a favorite music video? I'm not as much into videos, really. I was certainly when I was a kid because I remember the first video I ever saw on MTV was there's always um, something there to remind me. Who sang that song? I forget. Always. Yeah. It was like or modern English or anyway, that song, that video sticks out in my head as my first experience watching a music video. And I think it might always be my favorite. I'm looking it up right now. Okay, thank you. Um, Naked Eyes. Uh-huh. That sounds about right, right? Yeah, that's exactly it. That one. And then I loved, um, I think it was Borderline, the Madonna video. I loved all the Madonna videos. There was one where she's just dancing in a white room. I'm going to say it's Borderline, but it could have been Lucky Star. Anyway, one of those two. The one where she's dancing in the right room, I, white room, I really loved a lot. But always something there to remind me, it was just like, I love the story that he, they tell and he's like following her around. Anyway. Talking of Madonna videos, I mean, she made some some great videos. Oh my God. I was yeah. talking to somebody who used to work at the record label that she was on back in the day. Uh-huh. Someone who should remain nameless, but is sort of at the, at the higher end of that pyramid of, uh, okay. of uh, Warner Brothers at the time. 
Yes. And and he was telling me how they they got on a plane to go to Italy to shoot the the video for um, Like a Virgin, which I think mm-hmm. is a genius yes. video. Yes. And and they literally rented a plane. This is how much money there was in the music industry at the time. Yeah. And they took the whole crew on like a on a plane. Everybody went together. It cost them a million dollars to film that video. And this is what, like 1980? Oh, yeah. Like something. 85 or something. Yeah, yeah, maybe. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's why, that's why her videos were so great. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, Like a Virgin is amazing. It really is. Yeah. That record. Yeah. Oh, my God. I love that story so much. Do you have a recent musical discovery that you'd like to share with our listeners? It doesn't have to be a a new band or a new artist necessarily, but something that's new to you. Well, I've been really digging the band Automatic lately. It's kind of giving me those like, I don't know, like kind of a throwback vibe, but they're, Mm -hmm. but it's new music, but um, I really like their stuff and... I've always liked Lucy Dacus, but we stumbled upon her. We were in Eugene, Oregon in the fall because my stepson was going to school there to see a football game. We we're like walking around downtown and like, we're like Lucy Dacus tonight. And we were like, well, and so we just went into her show. And, and this is why like bands always have to go on tour and always have to perform because it's such a game changer when you see like musicians performing live and that can like make or break for me like how I feel and like some of my favorite bands I are my favorite bands because I saw them live like always they played during the day at Coachella I saw car seat headrest at Coachella one year during the day like like running into this Lucy Dacus concert and like jumping in and seeing her live and hearing her sing in person yeah I would say like doubling down on my Lucy Dacus loves right now. <laughs> have you just, interestingly enough, sidebar on that, have, have you ever loved a band and then went to see them and you're like, oh, I don't really like these guys, I guess. You don't have to say who it is, but. I won't say 100%. Someone was asking me this recently and something that happened to me many years ago was I saw a performer who I was such a huge fan of and he was so messed up on whatever he was on that he Mm. could hardly perform and that was a drag and it wasn't like i wasn't like mad that i'd spent the money on the ticket i was so bad for him you know and i was just like bummed that i missed out on that experience but but there's another performer that i was hearing rumors about this person was like having some hard times on stage and I've seen this person perform so many times that I was like, well, I wouldn't really be mad at watching one of those shows because it would be like, I would be like, what what happens in this situation? But yeah, that was, that's been the only time that I felt like they weren't as good live. And it was only because I think they were like on drugs or drunk or something. It wasn't really like, I was like, oh, this music actually isn't that good or they don't sound that good. That's kind of more of it. Is there a band or an artist that you love personally, but feel that they perhaps never got the big break that they deserved or should have gotten? Well, huh. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe they, I really love Pine Grove. And I know there was some issues, some stuff with the, I think the lead singer, but I, I don't know. I, my taste is maybe just not as mainstream as I used to think it was because I would, I love Pine Grove, but I was like, I don't understand how this band isn't like everywhere. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm also, there's this band, like a smaller band called Arms Akimbo that I know them and I see them live and they just like light up the whole whole space wherever they are and that one I'm like how are they not like how are they not headlining their own tours or you know what I mean but that's how I feel about a lot of art you know it's all so subjective and you see a movie or a tv show and you're like how is this not taking over the world there's just so much now and it's so hard you have like if you love music it 
at this point, I feel like has to become a hobby of yours. Like you have to devote time and energy to it. It's not like the old days where you just turn on the radio and we listen to whatever they feed us, you know, like mm-hmm. you have to dig now and, and the algorithms, um, which my Spotify algorithm right now is like so good. So I get really nervous when people are like, search for this song. And I'm like, I don't want to because it'll screw up your algorithm. It's really hot right now. But I think that like you do have to devote time and energy these days. And like, you know, all the rest of the artists, which we kind of started our conversation about, like musicians are getting, I mean, I don't want to swear on your podcast, but you know, you're allowed. Okay. They're getting fucked right now. And so, you know, it's really important to listen to them on Spotify, but buy their concert tickets, buy their merch, buy their album, buy what you can buy from them, support them in some yeah. way, like in whatever you're comfortable with doing monetarily, because it's like everything's so different now um, for musicians. And it seems even more impossible than the other arts in a lot of ways. And then you know, you see like, oh, but then someone can write a song and put it on Spotify. So then maybe that's, I, I don't know, like maybe it would be harder to get strangers to hear your song. I mean, just because your song is on Spotify doesn't necessarily mean people are going to hear it. But it's not all awful, but I think it's like 80% awful. I think digital technology has a lot to answer. Yeah. For, yeah. You know, from from the point of view of obviously making distribution easier because you can distribute your own music now, then that's great. And democratizing that part of it was fantastic. But, you know, I don't know what percentage is, but 90 something percent of the songs on Spotify have less than a thousand spins, you know, just because you can put Put it out. Yes. Doesn't mean anyone's hearing it. Exactly. Yeah. And so, so trying to break through that stuff is just so, so hard, which is why we see so many bands just relentlessly on the road these days and and yeah. big bands as well, you know, bands that have a very high profile, but nobody's buying their records. So they just tour, tour, tour. It's the only way they can make a living. And yeah, uh, like you, I will listen to something that's streaming. Uh, but if I'm a fan or if I like it, yeah. I'll go on Bandcamp and buy the vinyl or something like that. Yeah, we have a pretty decent record collection and we support like we do buy a lot. We like if we if there's something that we love, we'll definitely buy the record. Do you have a a musical guilty pleasure? Well, I don't know if it's like a guilty pleasure, but I do like um like sometimes when I'm driving around, I listen to like reggaeton, and I like that. And we have like some really good Latin music stations because we're in Los Angeles, and mm. so I don't know. I don't think it's like I'm not like ashamed of it, like a guilty pleasure, but but it is like something that. I don't necessarily like listen to at home, but like when I'm driving around. I remember I did this movie called Adaptation with Nicolas Cage um, years ago. And we were chatting on set one day and he was like, he had driven a convertible to work and he was going to drive it home. And he was like worried about the traffic or something. And I was like, yeah, convertibles seem really cool. But like, you know, you can't play your like closet songs in a convertible because everyone will hear them. And he was like, what? I was like, you know, the songs you want to listen to in the car, but you don't want anyone to know that you really like. And he was like, oh, my God, you're right. I'm like, because you're in a convertible. There's a song, and I don't know who sings this song either, but there's a song called Bedrock, which is 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 like a song that I secretly really love. Um, I've also been making a playlist for my funeral. I am not, <laughs> I'm not sick in any way. I don't have plans for that anytime soon that we have no idea what the gods have in store for me but i started thinking about it recently and i was like i want some awful music playing at my funeral and i feel like if i die before my husband he'll be so sad he won't be able to function and pick out good music so i started my funeral playlist and i do have some crazy songs on it well give us a couple okay i will tell you i have my phone right here i can look it up well bedrock is one of them Bedrock is by Young Money. Is that right? Yes, sir. <laughs> yeah. I have. Okay. There's a Gnarls Barkley song called Going On that I think is really good. I love Halo by Beyonce. If You Want My Love by Cheap Trick was our first dance at our wedding. So that's on my funeral playlist. It's also a very hard song to dance to. Um, I love Together Again by Janet Jackson. Uh, silly love songs by Wings, um, which I got in a 
argument with my husband about because he does not like that song and he's wrong. It's a great song. Okay. But then when you hear the story about, I think it was that John Lennon was saying like that, I think he wrote that Paul McCartney wrote that song like as a, like a little F you to John Lennon um, who was making fun of like stupid songs. And so Paul McCartney like wrote this song. This is, by the way, I can't remember where I heard this story. So it might not even be true. You but. could be making it up, right? I also could be making it up. Um, but I do have a fantasy. I need to get my hands on my husband's cell phone when he's not looking so that I can change his ringtone to silly love songs because that would I like to mess with his ringtones. That makes me happy. I've got a song I, for my funeral because you, you've got to have one, right? But you've made a whole list. Yes. I didn't even redo all the ones on it, but yes, I have a whole list. But do, do you envision a DJ uh, doing this? Well, I mean, if I have my playlist, I don't know if we'd need one, but I always think a DJ is a good idea. Yeah. When in doubt, hire the DJ. Exactly. Just checking. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we're finishing up on our last question, which is how are you feeling right now? I was going to say, I feel pretty great. So I guess that's my real answer. But then I remembered the strike happened and I'm like, ooh, I'm great, but also curious. Like what, what's next? What's going to happen in your business? Yeah. What is going to happen? I feel we've just been through so much in the last, not we as in my business, but everyone, the world in the last four years, you know, um, I don't know. I'm cautiously optimistic that things will get better because they've been so bad, but I feel really happy today. I like talking to you. I love talking about music. Um, I find when I talk about music, I want to like be impressive and interesting and cool and have my finger on the pulse, but also those are my real answers. Well, for, first of all, thank you for, for <laughs> taking a minute. Cause I literally did just sort of hit you up out of the blue. And um, together with, you know, somebody working for you, we managed to figure out a good yeah, time to be able it. to do this. Yeah. And uh, I, I love talking to you about music. And um, listen, good luck with the play. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm hoping we can do this again. And, I'll, and, and you can think of different music questions that I haven't answered yet. Well, I would love to do this okay. again. You know, bef bef before we go, I did say to you before we started running, um, I was going to say tape, but whatever <laughs> this is recording on. Whatever. Uh, that I'd watched a couple of interviews with you last night, different interviews. And in one of them, you were talking about wildwomen.com. Oh, yeah. I, I figured I'd let you go out with that. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I'm a partner in a supplement company targeting women over 40 for perimenopause and menopause. And it's like been such an incredible uh, journey so far. It's been a year and a half since we launched. You can find us at CVS and Sprouts and Whole Foods and Fresh Time in the Midwest. And uh, I don't know, I just want to like change the dialogue about aging and start these conversations uh, that people are always afraid to talk about, like how how it's hard to age. doesn't have to be terrible, though. And there's things we can all do. We could talk about it. And also, I have like, um, I'm in this really cool Whole mini series as well called White House Plumbers, which it it premiered on May first yesterday. I don't know when this will air, but it was on May first on HBO, and that's really exciting. But yeah, I've been busy. I I've been trying to, um, you know, do a little bit more than just acting these days. Like diversify. That's the word. It's been I I don't know how many years, but it was a long time ago when we did that show. And I love meeting you back then. And, and thanks for hanging out with us on the podcast. Yeah. Thank you for having me. And uh, I love, I love the SoCal sound, dude. Well done. Oh, thank you. The radio it's station. the best. Oh, yeah. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Dig it. Yeah. Thank thanks, you. Thanks, Judy. All right. Let me just stop this and say thank you properly. Oh, my gosh, Nick. That's so fun. Thank you properly. The Sound of Success is hosted and produced by myself, Nick Harcourt, for Spark Network. Our theme music is by Keita Klein. For more episodes, find us on Spotify, Apple, sparknetwork.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.